the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. I'd like to introduce today Squadron Leader Retired Peter Armstrong. The Australian Air Force needs personnel who can adapt to whatever type of demanding operations that they are chosen for. Peter and his mate Peter Bradford, who features in a fellow podcast, represent the very best in pilots who were chosen to fly many different aeroplane types and operated them in a manner that really did excel. Now, in this particular podcast, I'd like you to listen in as Peter describes his life flying Iroquois helicopters in Vietnam, where the sound of the Huey was not only extremely welcome, but for Army personnel, it really could be the difference between life and death. Peter will also talk about his stint on C-130 Hercules, followed by stints on fast jet instruction, Boeing 707s, DC-8s, and then on to Qantas. Pete actually joined the RAAF in August of 1968 and ended up on the first all-through jet training on the Mackie, which was brand new. He left the Air Force in May of 1985, after which he joined the Air Force Reserves with 3-3 Squadron, again, and re-qualified as Qualified Flying Instructor on Boeing 707s. He retired from the RAAF Reserve in October of 1994. Pete then went on to work in Qantas as a Boeing 747 simulator instructor for three years before becoming second officer flying Kerry Packer's DC-8. He then rejoined Qantas as a simulator instructor on Boeing 767s and also the Airbus A330s until he retired. Listen to his interview. It's fascinating as he relates the story of his life flying. Well, it's my great privilege uh, this day to interview squadron leader, retired Peter Armstrong. Hello, Peter. G'day, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Now, I, I, I another chap we're going to be talking to or have already talked to is uh, Peter Bradford, yeah. who was involved with you. Tell us about that relationship. How did that? Where did that start? Uh, I first met Pete uh, when I was on Five Squadron, uh, learning how to fly helicopters, and he was an instructor and I did a couple of flights with him, uh, not not very much. And then um, I went to Vietnam and uh, after Vietnam, I don't know how we got back into, oh, we both got posted to C-130s at the same time. And uh, then we both eventually ended up in Qantas. And, um, and then I got offered a job flying for um, Kerry Packer and, um, after I'd been there two or three years, um, I hired Pete as a, another pilot. So, uh, and we flew that until it until he sold it. The relationships it, that that seems to me to be an enduring ingredient within everything to do with the RAAF. The relationship in the service itself with all of the people who are part of it. it's almost like a family. It, it is a family. Well, it, to me, it was. Probably the greatest experience I ever had was the Air Force. It was fantastic. Yeah. Loved every minute of it. Why did you join? I basically wanted just to fly aeroplanes, you know. I, I wasn't interested in solving the world's problems. I just wanted to learn how to fly good aeroplanes and um, 
and I was very, I thought I was lucky to get in. I didn't think I was good enough, but uh, managed to jag it. I came from Cessnock, pretty tough town in those days. Yeah. But I used to see the mirages and sabres flying overhead. and um, That's for me. Yeah, yeah. It was. And my dad was a pilot in the Air Force uh, right. in in the Second World War, so and that sort of generated an interest, I suppose. I, I wonder, having spoken to one or two other people who've mentioned they don't really want to go up the ranks, to what extent, if you want to be a pilot and you end up becoming a fighter pilot, yeah. that you've really achieved the zenith of your career and you don't want to be a wing commander or a squadron leader or a chief of air force where you're not flying. Would, would, would there be any element of truth in that? Oh, yeah, but um, the, I wanted to, when I was in pilot school, so I wanted to eventually go to fighters, um, but I didn't. And, and I'm so glad I didn't because I had such a great career not flying fighters, you know. And uh, I did things, I can't imagine... Apart from flying fighters, that I that there's anything else I could do in aviation. I, I had an absolutely fantastic career, yeah, and, and enjoyed absolutely every minute of it. You yeah. know, everyone I've spoken to says pretty much the same thing. Um, all right, you joined in 1968. You've told me why you ended up on the new Mackies. Were brand, there... brand spanking new, yeah. And what was so special about this new Mackie? Well, we. When I first joined, we went to Point Cook. I was expecting to do the old system of windchills and vampires. And we got to Point Cook, and it, it was in midwinter, and it was absolutely desolate, freezing, rat hole of a place. <laughs> and I didn't see how th- that I could put up with it. And then all of a sudden, they called us and said, you don't even do ground school. You're off to Perth. And uh, we got this, we're going to try this brand new um, all-through jet training, and uh, which we just couldn't believe it, you know. And they sent us over to Perth and it was lovely and sunny and warm and we had these beautiful little brand new jets. The first five or six of them uh, had been actually manufactured in Italy and sent to Australia before we started making them. And I remember I went out one day to do a pre-flight and um, jumped underneath it to check the wheels and uh, I realised for a kid from the Hunter Valley that it was the first time I had magnesium wheels and Pirelli tyres. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which I thought was just fantastic. But it was I found it a, quite a challenge to fly. In what way? It was, um, it was basically a simple aeroplane, but it was hard to fly. I, I found it hard to fly the way they wanted me to fly it, you know. And, uh, and yet, it, when I went back to it as a flying instructor years later... I just loved it. It was a great little aircraft. So what was the difference between what you were flying it and what they wanted you to fly it? How did that differ? They wanted me to fly it accurately and, <laughs> uh, and you know, and, uh, and fly the Air Force way. You know, fl- flying it in formation I, I, it was always a challenge, I thought. And uh, when I did my instructor's course, I flew with some fighter pilots. And they found it a challenge too. And and I said, what about you? But you do it in the Mirage all the time. They said, the Mirage is easy to fly in, in formation. It just gets in and sits there And uh, it, compared to the Mackie. So were you able to explain why the Mackie was difficult or challenging rather? I think it's a light little, maybe a little bit more unstable than the Mirage. I'm not sure I never flew the Mirage. Yeah. So. 
So, but uh, well, I was we won't quite make that comparison. I'm just interested in your experience with the Mackie. But when you were a flying instructor and you went back to teach other people to fly Mackies, you'd overcome all that in your own head, sure. Well, you get you build confidence, you know, yeah. and uh, and self assuredness, and you know that that you can handle it, sort of a thing. So. No, it was, it was, I much enjoyed going back as a flying instructor. That was good. Would that be part then of the Sabres, the Mirages, the F-18s, the F-35s, that when you are learning on them and you're a novice, yeah. um, it's not, you don't have that background experience and the more you fly it, the less you concentrate on the flying of it and actually just controlling it. Yeah, I, my, my experience with the with the modern aeroplanes I've flown since then is they are very easy to fly, but they're difficult to operate because you've got so many uh, variables coming in, and if you're the captain of a of a big aeroplane with a crew, um, and you've got weather, you've got passengers, you've got the, there's you know the you, the flying is just sort of a, an aside. Yeah, it's the management of the situation that that is really complex. Sure, uh, I'll do jump then to just very briefly to the Qantas experience. And when you are flying a domestic passenger aircraft, how much when you're in the air, how much as a pilot are you flying, as opposed to the plane flying for you? I hardly ever. You, you do the takeoff, which is fun. Yeah. And if you can, you do the landing, um, but it's automatics all the way. And that, that's the way they want you to do it because the, the autopilot does a better job than you do and uh, it's much more efficient. So you sort of basically get airborne, you pull the wheels up and you turn the autopilot on. <laughs> okay. Let's stay with the Air Force for the moment <laughs> then, Peter. Um, you, if you joined in 1968, that's pretty close to when then you end up in Vietnam. Yeah. How were the the instructional steps from commanding officers to you about why you were going to Vietnam, when, how you were going to Vietnam and what you'd be doing in Vietnam. What was the information like? Uh, well, it was basically this is how you fly a helicopter. Um, and, okay, um, you're going next Thursday. And uh, it was as quick as that. I'd been out, I did a couple of exercises with the Army I went there a little earlier than I expected because they had an accident and a, and a pilot, um, two pilots got injured and, and so they needed a pilot on the spot. A, a, a plane or, or a, a helicopter? Helicopter, yeah, okay. A, a, they had a crash up there and it caught on fire and uh, they wanted to replace uh, this pilot so and they just rang me up and said, you're off. So it got me up there. Uh, well, I'd only... I'd only been off pilot's course for 10 months. So August of 1970, so it was yeah. when you went. Yeah. Um, you trained on Mackies. When did you start training on the Hueys so that you'd be ready as a helicopter pilot to go to Vietnam? Um, when, when was that? Um, well, it was about uh, about 18 months before I got to Vietnam. Right, yeah. okay. And, uh, it, and the transition I, I found from fixed wing to helicopters, I found it difficult and uh, sort of unnatural but then it's like anything you you do it for a bit and you uh, get used to it oh, and become second like, nature yeah the, the the helicopters are wonderful the, so, the Hueys we flew a great aircraft so the the helicopter flying a helicopter is not like flying a, a jet fighter it's not the same you're not doing exactly the same things or you are doing exactly the same things um no you do it's a whole different role yeah and the way you fly it is different differently yeah but you do you take off and you land 
and uh, and you fly in the cruise for a bit. But the jobs that you can do with it, you know, like you, you can, there's so many things you can do with it. Sure. And uh, and they're they're a very useful aircraft, and that's why the Australian government spends has spent so much money buying really good helicopters. Yeah, you know? sure, sure. It's, it's a pity that the Royal Australian Air Force now doesn't control them. Yes, that is a big pity. Yeah, yeah but they are in the air; they fly. You'd think. Naturally, they'd be part of the RAAF. However, you went to Vietnam and you were part of Nine Squadron. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me about Nine Squadron. Uh, it was a when I got there, it was um, well established, and they had their ways of doing things, which which uh, was good. Um, and they weren't, uh, and they were very safe. Um, they weren't dictated to by the army. Um, and the army do do tend to dictate. You know, we want you to do this. We said no. We, you know, you'd have various things they'd ask you to do, and we would say no. It can't be done. We'll show you how to do it. Yeah. We'll do the same job, but we'll do it differently. And uh, so you learn the way they do it. Um, and everyone was on on the same level. And then they let you loose as a captain, and uh, and then as the different situations arise, you, you learn to deal with it. But I th- I found that that um, the younger guys in the squadron um, were were more flexible and adaptive um, in in complex situations than some of the older guys that had that had flown other aeroplanes and then got sent to helicopters. Sure. And because they were they were rank and they were worried about their that they were doing the right thing whereas us, we boggies were just out there and we get the job done. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Peter, um, I know there are Hueys, there's a medivac role, there's a gunship role. Were you in did you get involved in all the different roles what the the, the various yeah. choppers could do? Yeah. Which was the more challenging and why? Um, I, I found I did a month of, of what they call dust off. The Americans, for some reason, call medevacs dust off, um, where you go out and people that have been wounded or killed, and, and you pick them up and, and and try and save their lives if you can. Yep. I found that challenging um, because of of the blood and the gore and and a few other things. And I actually happened to dust off a couple of my friends that had been killed. Mm. Which was which was sort of, you know, sort of makes you sit up and take notice. Um, but it, on the other hand, it, it can be very satisfying to pick up someone who's save their life seriously injured, yeah, and get them back in time, and and you know, and go on and so forth. And uh, yeah, I, I found that that was challenging. Just flying uh, what they call slicks, they used to call them slicks, was just just a general helicopter does everything. That was good challenging flying because the most of the time you're flying around you're fairly heavy um the weather up there in the wet season is is pretty tough um and the, there's always the danger someone's going to shoot you down um did you have any close encounters my, my aircraft got hit a couple of times yeah um and then I flew gunships for six months, which uh, at the end of my tour, which was uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed all the flying. You know. So but the the person operating the gun on your your plane, your chopper, um, what was the relationship? Well, what was the relationship of the team like in your in your chopper, but particularly the gunner and you as the pilot? Well, the pilot fired the guns. We, we the had, pilot fired the guns. Oh yeah, yeah. We had. 
a minigun each, either side, and each gun will fire 6,000 rounds a minute, so it fires a lot of bullets. Mm. Um, and we had 14 rockets, we had seven aside, that was fired by the pilot. And we on, the door, on each door we had uh, a gunner on one side and a crewman on the other, and they had two M60s in tandem. Um, and they used to stand up and that gave you protection from the sides. Uh, but your main attack was from the front. And uh, you you rarely ever saw... I fired a lot of rounds and a lot of rockets up there. and um, But it was in support of troops. And I never saw an enemy the whole time I was there because it was in the jungle. Sure. And and the way they used to work was the army, they'd have this thing uh, procedure where they, they'd throw smoke grenades... And and be, and you wait for the smoke to drift up through the and trees. fire the gun at that smoke. Yeah, and then you say where do you want it, and uh, and they'll say you know in ten yards to the north or, or whatever, and uh, and then you do a pass, and then you'd break off, and there was always two of you, and and in the break you'd say how did that go, and the guy on the ground would say no you can bring it in closer or. So what was the difference then between firing the gun as opposed to firing the rockets? What what motivated the different the choice? Oh, it was just a you, you fired them. Generally, you fired them both. You'd let go, fire two rockets, and then you'd come in and you'd do a couple of bursts of mini, and then then you'd break off just to just to spread sure, it out. Sure. And uh, occasionally you, they might the guys on the ground might say, "Don't we don't want rockets? Uh, we just have mini gun," and. Um, it, it, once again, too, they were basically ineffective because the jungle was so, you know, the trees were over 100 feet high and mm. very dense. And the the enemy were very clever. They knew the, our limitations. And all you could do really is get behind a big gum tree. And you were safe. Yeah, if you knew what direction they were coming from. But towards the end of when I was there, um, we lost a couple of helicopters. They went into support people on the ground and they got shot down and uh, with loss of life mm. and um, I spoke to a, an army guy that was there on a second tour and he said to me I've noticed now that when we have contact he said they'll, they'll be shooting at us and we'll be shooting at them and he said when the helicopters come in he said they start shooting up in the air he said they know that if they knock out a helicopter the army is going to be distracted to try and look after the helicopter crew. And that, that happened. Uh, we had a big uh, battle up there, which they've just celebrated the 50th anniversary, called the Battle of Long Khan. Mm-hmm. And we lost a helicopter up there. And, and I, I'll never forget that as long as I live. The, the sound of the guys on the radio, they were petrified because they were up against the North Vietnamese. And uh, when the helicopter went down, they had to let a lot of people off to rescue the crew, uh, what the, the surviving crew, yep. and um, so it was, you know, it was uh, pretty awesome stuff, really. So, what is your pervading memory then of Vietnam? What sticks in your mind the most? Oh, I think uh, just the the death and destruction was 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 awful. Um, I learned a lot about about um, how Americans operate um, and, and how they can, in my opinion, uh, destroy a society because of what they introduce, you know, to a peasant, basically, society. And they come in there with money and drugs and, yep. and everything else. Um, 
the camaraderie between Australians was unbelievable. I really respect our army and all the guys that I work with in the Air Force. It was a terrific team. You know? To what extent do you think the Vietnam War um, made that possible, created that camaraderie between Army and Air Force? Because you said initially when you first went there, the Army said, this is the way you do it, as opposed to oh, well, a previous interview, this is the way you do it. And, and the Air Force, you said, and the Air Force said, no, we can't do it that way. Yeah. So to what extent did Vietnam create a, a better bond between Army and Air Force? Um, well, I think it, I think, well, when, I think when we finished there, um, that the Army, we just worked beautifully together you know yep. and, the, and with experience they knew what we wanted and we knew what they wanted now one of the things that one of the criticisms that I had when I came back from Vietnam was that I would have liked to have gone on the grip before I left Australia gone out and gone out in the jungle with that with some infantry to see you know the way the machine guns go to the high ground and how they move forward and all this sort of stuff when I was down there, I could hear them on the radio, and and uh, and you know, and and sometimes you could see the rounds going up in the air and everything. I didn't have a clue what was going on, really, you know. And uh, so it would have been better if we'd have had a bit of training in that respect. I met a, a, um, a an American gunship pilot once, and he told me that he did six months with the army before they put him on. Uh, he was already in the army. But he did six months with the infantry before they uh, before they did it, yep. and he thought it was a great experience. You know. So was that a lesson for good maybe training exercises of the three services within Australia that they do exercises all oh, together? Must do, must absolutely. And uh, you know, I don't. The technology we had in those days was was basic. The technology they've got today, I, I, the way that it all blends together, it's just yep, unbelievable. Yep. They must have to train all the time. You well, know? we have international training exercises. <laughs> we obviously need domestic training exercises as well. Oh, yeah, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so your enduring memory, one of your enduring memories of Vietnam is the relationship, the bond, strong relationship between Army and Air Force. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like coming back post-Vietnam? Um, post they, <laughs> at the end I was, I got, I ended up, I was pretty pretty disillusioned with the whole war. I went there thinking that we were, we were stopping Australia being invaded, you know, in the domino theory. Yep. And, yep. and uh, it, it, what I saw happening there was, and, and I did a little bit of research when I was up there, was very much that the that the Vietnamese were fighting for independence. They weren't fighting to take over Australia, and uh, it was. I think the American efforts were misguided entirely. Um, so, and you know, I went out one day and they'd done an ambush, and um, the bodies were still there, and they were couriers, um, and they were just they were, I'd say, average age about twenty, mm. and uh, one of the one of the couriers had uh, it hadn't been injured in the, in the initial blast and uh, had tried to creep away and it was a girl she was a young girl and uh, she was hiding and, and accidentally a guy backed an APC uh, over her and, and, and on the bottom part of her body 
and uh, we, the, I took the general up there the next morning because he wanted to just see the scene. Mm. And I think they killed about eight of them. And uh, I just walked around and saw this young girl lying there. And um, she, had, she was an absolutely beautiful young girl. But she had um, a ro- rosary bead around her neck. And, and I was brought up a Catholic. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, this, what's going on here? She's yeah. just basically got the same ideas as I have. And, and, and we've just killed her. You yeah, know? Peter, the horrors of war on, oh. both, on both sides. So you come back to Australia. You're still in the Air Force. Yeah. What's your next job? Uh, I went to Sar Willie Town. Is that search and rescue section? Yeah, yep. yeah. Which for me was fantastic because I just wanted a break, and it was just it was like having your own personal helicopter. I went back and lived in my hometown, and um, and my wife and I had two kids, um, and I bought a house, and it was great, and uh, I really enjoyed that. That was that so. Was what did the role in search and rescue? What what sorts of things were you actively involved in? Oh, well, the basic thing there was we were waiting for, for a knucklehead to to jump out of a mirage and we were going to go and rescue go him. Go and rescue him. Yeah. Um, and that, that rarely ever happened. But we did, used to do – the the uh, OC at the time was very keen on us um, working with the civil authorities mm. and we did a lot of work with the police, which, which was fun, you know. And uh, I went out and – with some police one day and we found a, a guy who'd been murdered and, and buried. We found his... Really? Yeah, that was... That Tell was. us about that. How did that happen? I mean, how do you find a buried, a buried person? Uh, they, they, it was a big uh, property. and it, I think it was a property dispute that caused it. And uh, the police said, we think he's buried him on the property. And uh, and it was rugged, in rugged country. And we went up there and I just flew over the property and looked down, sure enough, and it was just this little area of disturbed So soil. you could tell it from the from the chopper? Yeah, but as the police said, it was very lucky that he was. No, 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 that's okay. You found him. That, oh, yeah. Just stick to that story, yeah. Peter. Yeah. Uh, did you get involved in any other civilian rescues? Yeah, we, did. we used to do medevacs all the time. If they got... Uh, Mainly uh, transferring from uh, if they got desperately ill in Newcastle hospitals and they had to go to Sydney, uh, we'd just fly down the coast. And so does this predate the Westpac? Re- yeah, yeah. So yeah, it does that- yeah. yeah, we used to you know occasionally go out and spot sharks and and all that sort of stuff. It was good. Good. See what see what the Royal Australian Air Force gives you is in terms <laughs> of a right. career. Yeah. So how did you get involved in the C-130E, the Hercules? What You got onto those as well. How did that happen? They just posted me, said, off you go. So I went down and uh, to Sydney and uh, and did the conversion course, and uh, which was awe-inspiring to jump into this huge aeroplane after flying choppers for so long. And uh, but it was enjoyable. What was your first flight in an aircraft so big compared to a chopper like? Oh, I, I was basically there for the ride, even though I was sitting in the front seat. I didn't really have much of a clue what was going on, but uh, but we got there, you know, and um, it was great flying. They didn't the Herc that I was flying didn't go out and drop troops and all that sort of stuff. Mm. We were just long range transport basically. So I, we did. Uh, we used to do regular trips up to Butterworth, which was mm. which was fun. Took a week to get up there and back, or, or five days. Um, I did a w- around the world trip, uh, which was really interesting. On a Hercules, yeah, yeah. So a lot of stops on the way. You know? How would you com- 
how would you define the Hercules? Was it a, how good was the Hercules? Well, oh, it is still, of course, but how good was it when you were flying it? Uh, fantastic, great aircraft. Why? Uh, it would just well, it it had a you could pressurize the aircraft, so you could uh, you could uh, the cabin at eighteen thousand feet, the cabin was still at sea level, which apparently for for doctors when you're doing medevacs they love that. Mm. Because when you get depressurized, it must affect you medically some way. So it was good for that. You, the stuff you could carry, it could land in short fields. Um, didn't use much fuel. Um, uh, you know, you could get spare bits all around the world. It was a, just a great aircraft. So would you consider it even still to be one of the mainstays of our, our flying wing? I, I would say that'd be, a, yeah, I'd say it'd be the major part. The C-17s are apparently are fantastic, but the Herks, are, they're doing a great yeah. job. They're everywhere, you know. Because my son joined, my son's friend joined the Air Force and he had a choice between flying fighters and flying Herks and he chose the Herks and I could never understand why, but what you're saying, it's obviously a fun plane to fly. Well, I think that, I think that I've been hearing lately that the new fighter pilots, they don't get much flying at all. They do a lot of time in simulators, but they don't do much actual flying. Maybe that's why he chose Herx, but yeah. anyway. So from that, is that when you're posted to actually going back and training Mackie pilots? Yeah, yeah. I did about, I think, about three years on Herx. And, and then, where and was the Mackie training? Was that back at Point Cook or no, back no. in Perth? Uh, the, well, the course was a five-month course at, uh, at CFS in East Sale. Right. Um, and then I got posted to Pierce. Uh, uh, as a and that's the advanced flying training school for uh, with Mackies for the yeah, yeah yeah and the kids had already been trained for a hundred hours or whatever it was on on CT fours you know the little yeah um, so we just sort of converted them onto jets and gave them that sort of training um, and that was for a year which which I I, I loved it Perth's a great city and uh, we had a, it's a good social life over there um, and then all of a sudden. They said to me, "Do you want to go and fly seven oh sevens?" And I said, "Well, what do you reckon?" Yeah. So, <laughs> this is this is going to thirty three squadron. Yeah. Yes, it so, wasn't thirty three at the time. It was a, it was like an add on to thirty seven squadron. We hadn't actually formed as a squadron in the early days, and uh, that only lasted for six months or something. And then we formed our own squadron, which was thirty three, or reformed a squadron. Okay, so tell me why the RAAF had Boeing seven oh sevens. Well, they'd had um, an incident uh, on the VIP aircraft they had at the time. The biggest one was the Back 111. And I believe that it was flying with Gough Whitlam once and it went out to go to New Zealand and it had an engine failure and came back on one engine, and, and you know, which was quite safe and, and everything. But people said, no, no, this is not right. And it also it was a short range. And Qantas uh, was was running out. Their seven oh sevens were they were getting rid of them, and they apparently made an offer to the air force. And said, "We've got a couple here, and they're the best we've got, and you can have it in the simulator uh, for for a pretty basic price." And and the air force grabbed it. And uh, and was that because of the was uh, Whitlam the prime minister at that no, stage? No, no, it was Fraser. Fraser. Yeah, and he was the one that authorised it. And um, you know, it's more. I think it's more fitting. For a, for the prime minister to turn up in a in a flash aeroplane than it is in a little dinky thing like that, you know. Okay, so that was fun for you, was it? 
Were you flying the 707? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for years and years I thought, yeah. And who did you fly? What kinds of people did you fly? Well, where do I start? Um, yeah, well, start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> the, first, uh, the first sort of VIP I flew was Malcolm Fraser. I did a few trips with him. And because he was former Air Force himself anyway, did he have interact with you? No, it wasn't. No, Fraser wasn't Air Force, no. No, not Fraser. Uh, I'm sure Malcolm Fraser was in no, the No, 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 Gough Whitlam. No, yeah. no, Gorton. Gorton, I apologise. Oh, Gorton no, no. was in the Royal Australian Air Force, not Fraser. No, so, he was long gone. Before. Yeah, yeah, long gone, long yeah. gone. Okay, so you, Fraser was an interesting person you first flew. Who well, else? I didn't think he was interesting at all. He was an awful man. I, I didn't like him. He was rude and, and arrogant. That's interesting. And, yeah. uh, but you better wipe that too, I No, 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 that's cool. No, hey. And who else did you fly? Well, then he got, he got the boot and then Bob Hawke. I took Hawkey on his first trip, um, which was and it was chalk and cheese. He was a lovely guy. He came up in the cockpit, and his wife was with him, and um, they were so friendly. And it was a whole sort of different atmosphere. And um, so, when he's up in the cockpit with you, is is he talking to you about flying? What's flying like, or is he just talking about other things? Yeah, yeah sort of. He, he was. He knew how to engage. You know what I mean? He uh, he he didn't know anything about aeroplanes, but. But but just he talk about politics if you wanted to. Um, but I took him to uh, Jakarta, and um, he, we we landed in Jakarta, and I would say there was a that there would have been at least a thousand of, um, um, Indonesian troops lined up for a parade to welcome him, and uh, and he stood at the door was still closed, and but it had a window in the door, and he walked up to get off. And uh, and I got out of the out of the seat, and I could see all these guys. And and he and he looked out the window like that, and he stood back. And, and I just happened to walk out of the cockpit, and he said, "What is going on? What am I supposed to do?" And I said, "See the guy down there with the sword." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Just follow him." <laughs> and uh, and sure enough, he walked around and did that. That's that fascinating, Peter. Yeah, yeah, the pilot of an RAAF plane gets to tell the Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah. How to be greeted. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting story. So you had that for three years, right? On oh, the, no, I, had that for, I was there for about uh, six years. Six years on the 707s. Yeah. How does the RAAF... Is that still the case, Do you, to the best of your knowledge, that it's an RAAF person who flies the Prime Minister around? Oh, or? it is, yeah. They use the... It's still 33 Squadron, um, and they've got Airbus 330s now, and they, they do a dual role. They, they, they're a tanker. What do they call them now? They call them a force extender or something. Um, but they fuel for the for the fighters, and they they can do them up inside as a very nice aircraft inside. And that was the one that just took him over to over uh, to the Glasgow. Yeah. Okay. So it's still it's still and that's thirty three squadrons role. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you leave there, I think you left in nineteen eighty five. You left the air force rather in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Uh, was that because you'd reached the right age, or no? I had a, I'd had what you what you'd call a sort of, a, what would you call it, a falling out with my CEO, which was strenuous falling out, and it was he made it quite clear that I had to, I had to go. So I went. Okay, fair enough. We won't we won't dwell <laughs> there. But you did you did go back. You went back to the reserve. Yeah, I was out of it for a year, and uh, that guy had gone. And uh, the new fellow said, I'd like you back. And 
I went back as a, I was a still a flying instructor on the seminar, and for the next, uh, oh, it must have been about six, seven years, they used to call me up and just say, and Qantas was good, I was working for Qantas at that stage, and I could get, they used to have a thing called military leave, where you get two weeks off mm-hmm. a year, but I was working sort of weird times with Qantas, and uh, I had a lot of time off, so I'd come in, and, and if they wanted me to, I'd just just grab a 707 and, and a couple of guys and go and fly with them and um, and come back and no responsibilities and just sign off the aircraft and they'd pay me money and it was great. I really enjoyed it. So how much do you uh, thank the RAAF for, for allowing you to get the job with Qantas in terms of training and discipline? Oh, was, I, I doubt I would have got it with Qantas if I hadn't. When I first went to Qantas, I was hired as a simulator instructor. Uh, they, I was too old to get into Qantas as a pilot. And then um, I'd been there for about two years, I think, and they suddenly changed the age and said, no, we'll, we'll take older guys. And, uh, and, and myself and a few other ex-Air Force guys that had gone to the simulator, um, they all, we all got slots as pilots and mm-hmm. I started flying as a second officer on a, on a 747. Was that fun, the 747s? Or again, is oh, that, it flies itself? Yeah, but it was a it was a great aircraft, and the only trouble is, is being a second officer, you're not allowed in the in the front seat for takeoffs or landings, which is that's the best part of it, because you're supposed to be learning the trade. You know? Sure, sure. And, uh, and uh, it's you know they've got a seniority system, and uh, so I was I was do, I did that and um, for two or three years, and then I got offered another job, which. Um, which I couldn't resist. Couldn't re- yeah, an offer too good to refuse. Yeah. You uh, retired 1994. Yeah, about that. Yeah. If if I'm 17 years of age, yeah, and I've just finished the HSC, and I like planes, I also like sea ships. Why would you tell me if I asked you to join the Air Force? Um. Well. It, not knowing a great deal about about operational things in the Air Force today, that one thing I do know for certain is that you will get the best training that you'll ever get anywhere in the Air Force on good aircraft with very qualified flying instructors, um, and you you know and and it, it won't be on you won't be learning on the weekends. It's a full time job, and you'll come out as I would say a fairly highly skilled pilot. Uh, would I advise them to join uh, 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 to make a full career out of it? Um, I, I don't know. I really I've lost sort of touch with the Air Force. I'm not sure what the situation is. No, from your experience, though, I mean, I've, even if I'm your 17 year old son and I came to ask you, Dad, yeah. what do I do? Tell me why would I would I join? You've given well, me some good reasons so far. Well, if you had if if you were going to have an ex- a, a, a career like I had, I would strongly recommend it. Yeah, um, but. But it, but today, oh, well, as I said, I'm not sure whether you can just hang about and fly aeroplanes for 20 years like I did. Um, I'm not sure that would happen today. I think they're more interested in making you a, a battlefield commander or, you know, sure, th- sure. that sort of thing. Things have changed, as have the planes. Oh, yeah, well, the whole, <laughs> the whole situation has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. You know? well, look, Peter, as with everybody, and, and 
thank you for sharing your information about Peter Bradford, with whom you've got a close friendship as well, as I've said to all of the people that I've spoken to. And it really is a privilege to talk to you because you are all part of the rich tapestry that makes Australia such a wonderful country in which to live. Uh, our Defence Force, uh, Navy and Army, especially the Air Force, are very much part of that history and a very significant part of what makes Australia great. So thank you for your contribution and thank you for sharing your story. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.